Okay, we're going to continue this morning our study of the book of Luke, and um, this text is kind of in the middle of a discourse that's happening at a feast at the house of a Pharisee, and so Jesus was invited to this feast, and um, he is uh, comments. So I'm going to give you a couple minutes to just read this. You should have this piece of paper. If you don't, you can just uh, open up your Bible app to Luke 14, 12 to 24. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So go ahead and just, I'll give you two minutes, three minutes to read it quietly to yourself, and then we'll discuss it. Okay, let's have, a, let's have an open discussion here with your thoughts, your ideas, also your questions that have arisen from these discussions. And I actually want to start with the first observation of the morning being, who, seriously, who knew that Chris could sing like that, could sing that good? So I don't know where he is, but he's just kind of sitting in the back row, not bothering anybody, and then he comes up front. Anyway, that's my first observation. Uh, what about you guys? What do you say? All right. Okay, go for it. Yeah. I just think it's interesting, like, when, um, and it's kind of funny, I don't know, I thought it was funny when Jesus says, like, don't invite your neighbors, your friends, because they might repay you, and then you'll, you know, they'll invite you, and you'll have to go to their house. You know oh, what I'm saying? I just thought that okay. was kind of funny. That's how you read it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the, the antisocial introvert reading. Yes, that, yeah, don't invite, <laughs> don't invite your friends. They'll invite you back, and then But um, this is the idea that. we live in, like, sort of this society of, like, networking, you know, where yeah. you have to, like, connect with the right people in order to get ahead. Right. And it's just sort of Jesus is kind of like, no. Yeah. Like, no. Or what looks on its face like just social hospitality, welcoming, is really actually a play for some, some self-interest. That's, that's a great point, great observation. What else? Some people over here. Nice run. Um, I liked verse uh, 15 when the Pharisee chimes in and he's like, yeah, banquets. And he like wants to be on Jesus' side. And Jesus is like, you have no idea about this banquet, yeah, friend. Yeah. Like, I don't think you understand this banquet that we're having. Yeah, and I wonder if he's trying to change the subject or something because Jesus is actually talking to people at a banquet. And that's important. They're at a banquet and he says, the first thing that he says, which is not in this text, but we've already seen it, is he says, look, when you come to a banquet, don't sit up near the front because then people will tell you to sit in the back. You should sit in the back so that people tell you to sit in the front. And as he's telling that, someone did that. People did that. They sat in the wrong place. So there's just a lot of like, you know, looking at your feet and like looking around and wanting to change the subject. And then, then he says this, to the host, to the host, at a banquet with people, who are his friends, his family, and his wealthy neighbors. He says, when you have a dinner or a banquet, don't invite these people. <laughs> That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't invite these people. And then the host wants to be like, yeah, blessed is he who is, eats at the feast of the kingdom of God. Let's talk about that. Let's switch from this feast to some future feast. It, 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 it is a, like a pivoting point in the story. What else? Over here. Oh, no, you, you ran by the, the, the lady. Ladies first. Yeah, 
You can do it. You can do it. <laughs> no, we won't forget you, though, man. Don't worry. Um, I kind of am reminded of this passage every time we have house church down in Seminole Heights because it's not very far from Nebraska, and there's a park there that always has homeless people. And we've gone to feed them and give out Bibles and pray for them a couple of times. But even when we're meeting on those weeks where we don't go out there, I feel this tension, like, Maybe we should be out there because everybody that comes to house church can afford a meal, but those people that are out there can't afford a meal. So is it just because this is a banquet, like a special occasion? Because I know in Acts it says they met together and they ate together regularly. So that's part of the Christian experience to meet with your fellow, you know, Christians. But, you know, like where where do you say we should meet together and eat every week and Maybe, you know, like once a month go out and feed, or should we go out and feed all the time and be with the homeless all the time? Like, it's hard to discern. Um, thank you for bringing up the, the real and raw application of this. It would be tempting to um, play some sort of theological gymnastics with this text and not deal with it at that level um, because I think that is precisely what Jesus is saying I think he's saying when you invite people to your home this is who you should invite and I think we just we want to domesticate Jesus we want to, to, to create a Jesus that fits our worldview that affirms our choices. And, and it's very difficult to deal with the real Jesus. Because the real Jesus says things like this at our parties. And, and it does not, this is really important, guys, it does not match up to our lives. It doesn't. And I, I'm, it doesn't match up to my life either. So we have a choice. We can either try to evade that reality or we can face it. Now, you know, exactly what that means or where we need to go with it, well, I don't know, we'll see. But thank you for facing it and not evading it. This, by the way, is why we read the Bible together, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We don't leave bits out. When we started the underground, that was a, a conviction that I had, that we should go through the Bible without excluding any pieces. N you know, the, 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 the other option would be every time somebody gets up and speaks like this, they get to decide the topic. And the danger of that is I have biases. I have blind spots. Each speaker does. And, and we, will, we will miss parts of who Jesus is if we don't take the Scriptures as a whole. And if we will have the courage to face Scripture as a whole, we will find ourselves facing texts like this on days like today, four days before Thanksgiving. And, and, and if we have the courage to face it and read it for what it is, I think it can change our lives. And the chances that the, the possibility then hangs for us that we could actually become more like Jesus. Not like who we want to be with Jesus approving of everything we do and think but actually a relationship with Jesus which, is, which has Jesus as Lord over our lives. Correcting us, teaching us, luring us, wooing us into a different way. Okay, what else? 
I think my friend up here, yeah, you still got something to say or did I kill that? Sorry, man. Yeah, you got it. Don't be scared. This is kind of like what stuck out to me the most type of um, observation. Um, when Jesus replied like a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests, <clears throat> at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to those who had been invited. Come for everything is now ready. I think what's with that, he had something very special for that to show them what's happening right now at the moment. What do you like? Say more. What do you mean? Like he had something special to give them, like a like an important gift for the people who were there at the banquet. Hmm. Okay, the gift being the knowledge that your life is wrong and sucks, because that's that's the gift I'm getting from this. But yeah, um, anybody want to say anything about these excuses? Nobody wants to reflect on those at all. We're just going to pretend like those didn't happen. Okay, back there. There we go. Okay. Hello. Hi. Okay, I'm just gonna speak like in terms of I that it that it spoke to me like um, yeah. like last night I, I felt like I I needed to read my Bible, but I was writing a paper for school, and so it was like school. excuses. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I have to finish this paper, so I don't. It's like he's calling me to read the Bible, mm. but it's like no, I have. I have to I have to finish this paper. I have mm. to finish this paper. So it's like the same. That's that's okay. what I associated it. Yeah, that's good. Thank you for sharing that. It's very personal. Uh, it's not licensed for all you students to avoid your homework because <laughs> I need to read the Bible. I can't do this paper. I have to read the Bible. But we all have these excuses. Okay, what else? You want? Yeah, up here, please. I was talking to my friend here, and um, I would be pretty hurt if I invited a bunch of people and they just gave me excuses about what they have to do and all these things. Um, totally. And I think there's there's a tension where um, I had these people in mind to come, and then they didn't come, so I'm just going to invite whoever. And I think a part of me, if I were this guy, I'd probably just do it just to save face because I spent all this money on food and everything. <laughs> so... I'm just like, I kind of would do the same thing just to, you know, be like, yeah, my party, it was it was awesome. Look at all these people, but I didn't invite them in the first place. So I'm hoping this guy's not like me. Yeah. And he actually did it out of his heart. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and, and actually the text gives us the emotional state of mind of the, the host of the banquet. What is it? It's anger. It's anger. And I think we can't we can't evade that either. We we need to face that this morning. Let me um, let me go for it here. Um, oh, okay. No, I like that. Come, on. she's she she will not be dissuaded. No, we have a question over here. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Great. So the interpretation that I had for this one was kind of like when Jesus said, "He'll make the rocks." basically proclaim his name and talk for him and i'm saying i thought of it as if he's inviting all these people so you have big callings on your life but you're too afraid to take that position so you make up excuses yeah and those excuses make you forfeit the banquet so now god's inviting anyone who would want to come and those people will take the place and have that um authority in the position that god would place them in Exactly. And that actually that that uh, notion will become important 
through the life of the early church. It will become important in Luke's second volume, which is the, the Acts of the Apostles, this idea that the, the gospel is first presented to the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, and if they don't want it, it's gonna, it will be given to the nations, to the Gentiles. And it, is, it, it ends up, this be, ends up being a metaphor also of that, of the Gentiles being invited in to the kingdom's feast. Okay, it still amazes me the guts, the fearlessness. I, I never, I mean, I've been doing this a long time and I've been reading the, the Bible for as long as I've, as long as I can read, as long as I've been literate, I've been reading the Bible and Jesus still shocks me. He still amazes me. Um, his fearlessness, his love, his guts to be sitting in this room with these people. He was invited to this guy's house and this is what he's saying to them. It, the context matters here. It's, it's, I don't know, it's chilling. I think if you had been there, you'd have, been, you'd have been felt so embarrassed for the host and so embarrassed for the guest, so embarrassed to be one of the guests. And I think that's actually supposed to be maybe the way we read this a little bit, to be a little bit embarrassed, to experience some kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, deep self-reflection in the text. This whole narrative, these, these kind of uh, stories about a banquet are, are meant to make us look a little deeper. He's sitting there and he's seeing people jockeying for a position. I just, I just imagine Jesus being this kind of keen observer of behavior, human behavior, and he's watching them. And he's, wa he's realizing, wait, these people have agendas. They're here, they're not just here because they're invited, they're here because they're trying to gain something. So then he turns to the host and he talks about the guests. And, then, and then, he, then he turns to the host and he talks about his choice to invite these people. I just want you to imagine for a second doing that. I want you to imagine you're invited to someone's house and there's a whole bunch of people there and you're sitting at the table and this is what you say. Like, okay, just go, just project yourself four days into the future. You're at your friend's or your family's Thanksgiving. There you are. And there's a little lull in the conversation. And you say, you know, mom, dad, you know you should have invited to Thanksgiving. It's just great. This whole thing is so obtuse, so bizarre. And I think that's important. I think he's seeing this flaw, this, this selfishness of it, the whole, the whole ordeal. And he's penetrating it, cutting to the heart of it. When you invite, when you have the choice to invite people into your home, you share your life, your resources, you shouldn't pick people who can repay you. I think that's crazy. Spend yourself, he's saying, on the poor, and you'll get a reward which is eternal. Spend yourself on things and people who can repay you in this life, and that will be your reward. That alone will be your reward. And then someone says this statement, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. And that's the turning point. And that makes him tell this sort of parable. 
you know, they, they, want, they want to talk theology instead of the practicality of what he's saying about them. And so he says, okay, let's do that. Let's talk theology. And I think Jesus wants to agree with the statement, yes, the one who eats at the feast of the kingdom will be blessed. There's no greater thing than that. He wants to agree, but at the same time he knows, he sees they don't actually understand anything about that feast or who will be there or what it takes to arrive there one day. And maybe he even sees something more diabolical like none of them who are sitting there will be there. And I think that's what pushes him to this place of like social inappropriateness. I always think that Jesus, when he's breaching some sort of social dynamic and becoming so awkward in a room, it's because he has this eternal perspective. He sees that lives are on the line. Their futures are on the line. And he can't hold back. So he rocks them with this story. And he's essentially saying to them, you're not going to be there. And here's the thing. Listen, very, listen, middle class people, listen to me. It's, we're, the, we're not going to be there, not because we're not invited, but because we decline. Because we decline. That's the, the hard truth of the story. Because if you think of it, oh, well, one day there's going to be this incredible banquet and God will invite special people. I mean, that's like, I don't know, the most elite, the most sought-after invitation in the universe. And he's only going to invite, what, the special people? He's only going to invite, like, the, 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 the most famous people, the most righteous people, the most amazing people are going to make it into that invitation list. And actually, he's saying, no, that, that isn't it at all. Actually, a lot of people will be invited, but most people, the most amazing people, the most special people will decline. And this should chill us. The idea that you could get an invitation from God into His grace, into His house, into His revelry, and to think at the moment of that invitation, there's something else I'd rather do. There's something else actually in the economy of my own life and my own sort of uh, analysis uh, that's not as important to me as something else. <laughs> I actually think we do this all the time. I think we get an invitation from God deeper into His kingdom and we decline. I, I see three reasons Jesus is giving here why we decline. One, we decline because, well, let's, let me put it in this term. You will decline, he's saying. You, the listener, will decline because you worship yourself. That's the first thing. You will decline, he says, also because you cannot see your own poverty. And finally, you will decline because you do not think it is urgent. You do not see the urgency. Let me, let me work through those three one at a time. We decline because we are who we worship, serve, and obey. We decline because we worship ourselves. The overwhelming uh, uh, 
subtext for me in this whole passage is self-denial. I couldn't escape it. Each time I look at it from every vantage point, from every angle or facet of this text, it just keeps coming back to me to the issue of self-denial. Jesus will have already said in Luke 9 these words, no one can come after me, no one can follow me unless they deny themselves. Deny themselves. By the way, if you're interested in the root meaning of that word, denial, which I am because it's the only time Jesus uses it, this, the, the way that it's used in other parts of the New Testament is, for example, when Peter denies Jesus. Or the idea of denying your faith. You see, denial is not just like saying no to a thing. Denial is saying uh, it's taking a stand against a thing. And now, now think again. In other words, the, the connotation here is to deny means to turn away from. It means to reject that thing's authority over us. It's meant to, this, this invitation to self-denial is meant to, to make us turn away from ourselves as God. If any, think of it, so, so, so listen to that again. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. He must deny that God, that first and ever-present idol, me. I have to say, I'm not, in the same way that, that we would deny our faith, say, I, I'm not, I don't believe in Jesus, I'm not a Christian, I don't, I, don't, that's, I don't submit to that in any way. He's saying, that's what you have to do to yourself. I'm not with him. I don't agree with him. I don't follow him. This is actually really important. Think about that. When Jesus is talking about denying, you can't actually be a Christian. You cannot actually follow him or walk in his steps if you don't say of yourself, I'm not with him. I don't follow her. She doesn't run my life. She's not in charge of me. He's not in charge of me. Do you understand how profound that is? Only Julie? She has just like a little laugh for me there. That's all we have. This is, this is everything. You can't actually be a Christian if you will not, not deny yourself as ruler of your own life. Say no. No self. You don't get to be in charge here. See, the modern conception of the self as ego, by the way, is a very new idea. Thank you, Freud. Also, Jung, Rogers. This, is, this, is, this idea that the self is this very small thing. I mean, it wouldn't have made as much sense to the first century world. The, the idea of denying yourself for a first century person would have been a little different. It would have included your family. It would have included, actually, your sort of social strata. They, they wouldn't have understood themselves in such a confined way as we understand the self. So for the first century mind, the idea of self-denial would have included your friends and family. This is why what Jesus is effectively saying here is when you have a banquet, don't just invite yourself. Don't just invite your little network, your little family, your little social strata. Because, for the fir for the, again, for this, the first century Palestinian mind, they wouldn't have seen themselves as this singular thing. The idea of an ego didn't exist. They would have understood myself is my family. It is the, this sort of extended circle. 
That's who I am. That's, that's the concept of self would have been more corporate to them. And so, so Jesus is trying to deal with that here. In fact, there is no uh, ancient equivalent to our idea of ego. We have become so small in our conception of self that it's hard even for Jesus to imagine that happening and, and to speak to it directly. This is a narrowing view of ourselves. And I think that's important this morning. Something I want to say. That self-centeredness makes us small. And Jesus wants to make you bigger. It was an anthem, really, for my generation. Sung by Whitney Houston. She told us that the children were our future. We needed to treat them well and let them lead the way. And that seems altruistic. So we listened and we said, yeah, yeah, Whitney, tell us. Tell us. And then she said, you know, the, she realized that the greatest love of all was happening to her. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. I decided long ago I would never walk <laughs> in anyone's shadow. If I fail, if I succeed, at least I live as I believe. Because the greatest love of all is happening to me. <laughs> and it's learning to love yourself. That's the greatest love of all. No, it is not. And I don't mean that, I don't, I don't just mean that as a joke. I, I, mean, I, mean, I mean a generation bought that, believed it, still believes it. I, I still hear some of you occasionally say, I got to take care of myself. I got to get myself ready. I got to, I got to, look, I got to look, after, look after myself. We actually still believe that the greatest kind of love is the love to love ourselves. This is precisely the antithesis of what Jesus taught about love. It is exactly the opposite of what Jesus taught about love. I would go so far as to say it is for us the spirit of the Antichrist is the cult of self-love. Because Jesus is saying, actually, no one can be my follower if they don't learn to deny themselves. He is not teaching self-love in the way that we teach self-love. He is contradicting that point of view. And I think this, this cult of self-love has made us small. It's made our lives small. It shrinks us when we worship a God so small that it can only rule over one life. And it's not just, listen guys, please hear me out. It's not just blasphemy, that's enough. It's not just blasphemy, it's also degrading to you. It degrades you, it makes you small. And, and, and this is really important, it makes us fragile. 
the, the, you know, those people who I watch and listen to sort of tout and believe in this cult of self-love are also strikingly fragile. So we say, we, I need to care for myself, but the outcome is not a person who is stronger or more cared for, but actually a person who is weaker and more fragile. We have a generation of kids. Listen, you know, something happened with, when baby boomers and, 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 and just after that generation, they start saying, look, what kids most need is self-esteem. What we most need to do is tell our kids how awesome they are. And if we can just get their confidence up, they, they can do anything. I mean, the sky's the limit. So we got to tell our kids, you can do anything. You can be whatever you want to be. There's no limits. Just dream. Whatever you dream, you can do. But the problem is a generation of people who were told that believe it. They actually grew up believing, wait, I'm awesome. I'm amazing. I can do anything. And now they're sitting across from uh, someone trying to get a job and they're like, yeah, hire me. Why are you asking me all these questions? Uh, Can't you see? And who are you? And maybe you need to tell me why I want to work here. And they can't understand why they can't get a job or they can't understand why they're not succeeding. Or when they show up to work, they realize this is hard and this sucks. And this isn't my dreams coming true. And this is not all that I ever wanted in life. It's not a confidence problem. It's something else. We can't handle failure. We don't know how to grow. We don't know how to challenge ourselves. Some teacher gives you an F, you just think, what is wrong? Something's wrong with the teacher. Look, I have kids. And when my kids get the occasional bad grade, the first thing in their mind is, Dad, this teacher sucks. (laughs) Can't be me. I mean, my kids do not have a confidence deficit. None of them. The first thing in the mind to to a person who who has this sort of overconfidence, exceeding confidence, is like, well, if I got to see, it must be something wrong with the system because I'm awesome. (laughs) This is part of the reason why people from that, that, who've been told that their whole lives, they hit their mid-20s and they, they sink into deep depression. That's why 40% of us are on, are on some kind of psychotropic drug. Because our dreams have not come true. Because apparently we're not as awesome as we were told. Do you know, incidentally, who, who has the lowest, who, who scales with the lowest self-esteem in America? It's Asian Americans. Lowest self-esteem. And yet they outperform other kids, all other groups in every single area. I just want you to think about that for a second. So maybe self-esteem, whatever that means, to esteem yourself, to think you're awesome, isn't the, the, the signifier for success that we thought it was. Maybe, maybe the goal, when, when, when a person has a slightly lower self-esteem, they think, I'm okay, but, you know, I'm nothing great. And then they get a C or a D or an F or a B or whatever. They say, man, there's stuff I got to do to get better. Always trying to improve, integrating the idea of their own frailty. This is what I mean by 
frailty. We have come to believe through our own self-belief that we are actually capable of very little. So what happens is we were told we're awesome and then we go to live this life and nobody else sees that we're awesome and, and we become fragile because of that. We're easily broken. The smallest failure sends us spinning because the world is not what we thought it was supposed to be. It's not responding to us in the way that it's supposed to respond to us. And this, I too, this idea, too, of frailty, listen, I, I want to I address that, is also a kind of disease of the mind. A strange lie that feels like a kindness, but is actually a degradation. You see, we think it makes us healthy to chase self-love. Listen, some of you even right now are sort of like, mm, I don't like this. Because I think you should love yourself. And you're pushing back on me. and the re- this, You're just making my point. You're making my, if you're feeling that way, you're making my point because that is, that is the way that we're being taught to believe. And if this doesn't rub you a little bit wrong, you live somewhere else. You're from another country or something. It's, it's rubbing us all wrong because Jesus is rubbing us wrong because that's what Jesus does. And because our culture and our way of looking at the world is not 100% right. Can we just agree on that? And if you're not starting with that as your starting point, you can't get anywhere. And yes, we have this notion, which we actually believe, which is it, it is healthy to love yourself first, to put yourself first. That way you can love other people better. And that's just not what Jesus taught. And we actually have a generation now, this is very interesting, at least, at least in terms of social science, to be able to look at a generation of people that were told, you can do this. We didn't have this 30 years ago. We have it now. We can actually look. Did that work? How'd that work out for you? And it's not working out. I mean, actually, we actually, I talk to people sometimes, and I'm like, you know, God loves you. And the person, the, the response is like, I know. Of course. Because I'm awesome. And I just want to be like, I take it back. No, he does not love you. <laughs> I never thought saying to another person, Jesus loves you, would be spiritually unhealthy. But I feel that right now, that it's actually hurting you to tell you that. Yeah, of course he loves me. That makes the idea that God is gracious toward people and loves them like a family, that's not hard for this generation. This generation wants to go, yeah, totally. Because look at me, yeah, of course he loves me. And that's to completely misunderstand the love of God, the dimensions of the love of God. Follow me. Paul says it this way, I want you to know the height, the depth, the breadth of the love of God for you. Do you know how you do that? It's by knowing the height and depth and breadth of your depravity. And if you cannot see just how wicked you actually are, how broken you actually are, how, how devious you actually are, you have no idea what it means to be loved by God. The dimensions of the love of God are exactly proportional to the dimensions of your understanding of your own poverty, your own sickness, and your own sinfulness. And nobody did us any favors when they told us we were awesome. Because then when we hear that God loves us, we shrink the love of God. We make it small instead of cosmic. You see, what's amazing is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were his enemy, he loved us. 
And though every day of my life I want to give God the middle finger with my choices, with my words, with the way I think and the way I live, he still loves me. That's to understand the grace of God. And this, this disease of the mind is softly killing us. This cult of self-love is actually making us a generation that cares less about others, opening the door to greed and consumption in new and dangerous ways. I thought we were past this. I really did, because I've been able to see a few generations come through, and I just think this is, this is, this is getting uh, bad again. I'm starting to see this kind of renaissance for people wanting to have a lot of money and drive that cool car and have those great clothes and live in that nice house and all of a sudden all of a sudden there's a generation of of Christians who are not embarrassed by that pursuit and we're right back where we started and we're closing the door to hard work and bloody sacrifice the real tools of the kingdom and here's the thing I'm just going to break this this myth for you this morning it's a gift I'm going to give you you are not fragile you're tough. And you're not tough because you're awesome. You're tough because God has always been with you and stood by you. And by the way, those of you that just feel like you just can't, and you just need more time, and you need rest, and it's just too much, and you're all overwhelmed, and you're so overwhelmed, and please, I, I, don't hear me mocking you. I'm mocking that, that notion that you're a victim of your own life. I'm mocking the notion that you're actually this sort of fragile person which unless everyone affirms you and everyone tells you you're great and everyone only gives you positive feedback, you'll just break apart into a million pieces. And it isn't true if you have a relationship with this fierce iron God. You're much stronger than you realize. In fact, I'll, I'll prove it to you. Everything that's ever happened to you, just, just take a catalog, a litany of every bad thing that's ever happened to you. Guess what? There's one thing I know for sure. You survived. You're here. You're still breathing, and you made it. It doesn't look like you're all that fragile after all. You, okay. <laughs> you made it. There's not one thing that you've been through that you have not survived. You're not awesome, and you're not fragile, but you are loved. And that's different. That's different. That's about some sort of intrinsic worth that's given to you because of someone great. And that never changes. You are not so awesome as you think, but he has carried you. I think if you spend time with Jesus, you feel both corrected and loved at the same time. I think that's what you feel. Strangely, both unrighteous When you spend time with Jesus, you feel both unrighteous and also hungry for righteousness. You forget yourself a little bit and you feel drawn to pour yourself into the lives of others. But if you spend time away from him, you're drawn back into this small version of yourself and of your life, which is all about you. The cult of self-love is a black hole. It's a vortex. It's always drawing us back in reinforcing itself. Some of you know that I just got on Facebook this year, so I'm late to the party, and actually I'm so late that nobody else is actually in the party anymore. People are like, oh, Facebook is so stupid. Who does Facebook anymore? And yet you're all on Facebook. You all friended me somehow. You're still there. Um, 
So you, you trash it, but you're still there. Anyway, it's been, a, it's been a wild experience. I'm like learning how to use Facebook, and it's like cool. And actually, for me, it's a, I don't know, it's like, who knew you could connect with all these people and remember all these people? So, but I made a mistake. I made a Facebook mistake recently, and no one told me not to do this. So thanks a lot, guys, for not warning me or preparing me. But I made the mistake of going back and trying to find all my high school friends, all my old high school, yeah. Thanks for telling me. And some of you don't understand, because I'm, I'm class of 1990, y'all, so that's a long time ago. So I, I haven't thought about these people forever, but somebody friended me, is that what it's called, followed me, friended me, friended me? Yeah. Stop acting like you don't know about Facebook. You're like, I don't know, what is it? <laughs> Snapchat. Anyway, someone friended me who's from high school, and I was like, what? Check that out. So I clicked on their, their friends. And this is like a person who was always integrated, like in the know of everybody. And so I clicked on their friends, and they just had all these old high school people. And I was like, what? Click on it, click on it, click on it. And you just go in this hole, this deep, dark <laughs> high school hole. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It was, it, was, it was dark. Something happened to me. Something happened to my feelings. I started following these people. I started looking at these people, and I started feeling insecure. And I started mad. I saw this one guy. I was like, I'll bust him in his... I started feeling like angry again, like these old, these old rivalries are being churned up again. I was like, ooh, that guy? What? I hope his kids are ugly. You know what I mean? You're trying to click on them. It's weird. It was the weirdest experience. And I'm, I don't know, maybe it's 20 minutes, 30 minutes, I'm going on this horrible journey, this, this Alice in Wonderland hole that I go down, and I have all these weird feelings, like sucking me back in. I actually felt small. You know that feeling sometimes when you go home, and you're with your parents? Parents are great, we love you. But you, go, you feel young again, you feel in a bad way, you know what I'm saying? You feel like dumber and less competent and like you have a job and you like run things and you're, but no, not at home, nope. And they stick you back in the same room with the same bed and you're just like. <laughs> small. It's like sucks you back into the same problems, the same, the same flaws of thinking, you know. I felt smaller, weaker, concerned suddenly about petty things because I went back into that world of which I had been freed from for years. This is the cult of self-love. Always it is pulling us in. Always. And you can put on Oprah, or you can read Us Magazine, or you can look at Dr. Phil, or you could just follow any social media outlet you want, and it will reinforce over and over and over the right thing to do is love yourself before anyone else. And nobody, nobody is saying, Love others, put yourself last. No one is saying that except for Jesus. And if you put those ideas out there without his name on them, you will get roasted, you will get put down. But who's right? Who do you trust? Who will you follow? The second reason we decline the kingdom, the invitation into the kingdom, is because we cannot see our own poverty. I mean, it, it really is true that that the only people that should be invited to our house, the only people that are invited into the kingdom are the poor, the lame, the broken. But what we cannot see, sister, when we read this, 
is that we're those people. That doesn't occur to anyone. It doesn't occur to us that when we read it that we are the poor and the lame. That's us. Our problem, the reason why this throws us off is because we think, oh, I'm sufficient and I'm, I'm excellent and I'm normal and I need to go to a park and find those other human beings that are somehow messed up. You're those human beings. And this is our middle-class middle malaise. This is our middle-class blindness. We can't see it. We really think that somebody that doesn't have a house is somehow different than we are. You know, to, to be pitied and so on. When the truth is their dignity is equal to our dignity and, and our sin equal to theirs. Our brokenness equal to theirs. Skyler asked me the other day, my, my youngest, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> he said, are we poor? Are we poor? And I said, I thought, you know, this is important, this is an important moment for him. You know, he's nine, I think he's nine. He's nine-ish. Um, and I said, no, son, we're actually very rich. There are, there are only a few people in the world who have more than we do. There are some, but the vast majority of the world has less than we do. And you have to remember that. And I tried as best I could to explain to him that this puts us at a great disadvantage in our relationship to God. You see, the poor know that they're lonely. The poor know that they're desperate. The poor know that they're not going to make it through tomorrow without some help. We don't know that, but it's equally true. I can still remember, this is like maybe seared into my mind and consciousness. I, I, I forget who I was with. I remember Ensley was there. We were in Cap Haitian, so that northern city in Haiti, and this was years and years ago, and it was the first time I ever did evangelism in Haiti, and so we went out in these teams, and we would share, just share the gospel, like the propositional gospel with random strangers, and then uh, because there was something that this, this church and this pastor that we were friends with that we were visiting, something he liked to do, and so we joined them in that, and then we would come back, that anybody that said yes or was interested would come back, and they would sort of have a reception and meet the other people from the church and kind of get plugged in or something like that and I, I still I, th of all the places that I've been and all the times that I've shared the gospel people this has seared itself into my consciousness because every single person we shared the gospel with said yes and I found myself being surprised because wait you're not supposed to say yes I'm used to doing I'm used to doing ministry in, in the university right where everyone's like you know What's, you know, they want to they battle or challenge you or, you know, it's like one in ten, one in a hundred might be interested or open. I mean, say yes. But this wasn't just openness. This was like every single person would be like, okay, they're sitting there. You come over and say, okay, here's the thing. Uh, uh, there is a God. You have sinned. He loves you. He's died for you. He wants to make a way for you to be forgiven, to be in a relationship with him and so on. And, every, and all the Haitian people are like, <coughs> okay. 
No, but, you know, but do you want that? Would you, would you want to say yes to that? Of course. Do I look stupid? <laughs> you, wait, so you're saying it's free and he did it already and all I have to do is receive that gift, believe in it, and receive that gift? That's right. You know, I know you're not going to want to, you know. They're like, what is your problem? Yes, of course. Do I look, it's wise, you see. We're so used to doing ministry with rich and middle-class people that are like, think they're smarter than the solution of God for human depravity. That we actually think when we share the gospel with someone and they believe it, it's like, what? Can you believe this? Someone believed it. It's like you're trying to sell, a, you know, a, I don't know, a popsicle to Eskimos or something, or you're trying to sell a bridge that you don't own, and it's like, that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is the wisdom of God is being revealed. And it's the foolishness of this world which declines and says no. But the poor are wiser than we are. They see it immediately. And they go, of course I want that. Why wouldn't I want that? Something's wrong with us, not them. Something's wrong with the way we see the world, not them. This has always stayed with me. And it reminds me that the problem, listen guys, especially you that work at a university, just listen. The problem is not the gospel. That's not the problem. The problem is that people think they actually have something better to do than accept the gift that the gospel is. You can't fix the gospel. You can't say it better or different or whatever to make it more interesting or more relevant or applicable. The problem is not the gospel. The problem is the way we see the world. I mean, you tell me which is more wise to say, would you like forgiveness, love, power, hope, all offered to you by God because of his sacrifice for you? And someone goes, nah, I don't believe in that. I, 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 think, I think my own way of looking at the world is better. I'm good. I have something better going on. Poor don't do that. But here's the good news, even for those of us that are middle class or wealthy in the room. Here's the good news for you. Even the richest of us, the most righteous, we are hopelessly poor and sinful. That's the good news. And that's good news because it means you, you can have a place in the kingdom of God. Even the most righteous among us the most wealthy among us. You're desperately wicked and lost. That's good news. Remember Rudy? You see the movie Rudy? I just read recently that he was convicted of like securities fraud. Rudy Rudiger. No one knows who I'm talking about. Rudy, the Notre Dame walk-on player that the major motion picture was made about his life. Little Rudy, who every day was a walk-on and showed perseverance and character. And that freaking guy went out afterwards and just, like, stole people's money. Securities fraud. Rudy. 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 No one knows what I'm talking about or you just don't care? Thank you. Thank you. The guy from The Hobbit. <laughs> exactly wrong. No, that's the actor, not the person, but yes. (laughs) 
Even the best among us are chumps, sinners. Anyway, this is our problem. We decline the kingdom because we do not see how much we need it. How much that invitation means to us. This is the third thing, the last thing I'm going to say. We also decline because we do not see the urgency. And in all of these texts, all of these, these most recent texts in Luke, there is this, this time component. Time is running out. Time is running out. His mercy will not last forever. It will not extend forever. And this story is no exception. Part of what he's saying is he's saying, invite them, invite them. They're saying no, they're saying no. And then finally, the host of the banquet says, enough. They're not invited anymore. And it seems petty, and this is just a story. It's a metaphor to describe something that happens in the heart of God. But the truth is, it does reflect something meaningful in theology, which is the idea of judgment. That there comes a day and a time when we all have, then the mercy runs out. The opportunity runs out. And there is a kind of urgency here. We cannot reject him forever. Simeon and Luke, uh, that's, that's, that's four and five, have been arguing lately about Luke using Simeon's toothbrush. Now, I don't know for sure who's who and whatever, but Simeon swears, that's my toothbrush. And Luke's like, whatever, it's mine too. I'm using it. And he keeps asking him, Simeon keeps begging the older brother, Luke, don't use my toothbrush, don't use my toothbrush. And every morning, Luke doesn't care, he uses his toothbrush. So, Luke, I don't know what happens, but Simeon gets up, brushes his in the bathroom, he comes out. You know, he doesn't know if Luke's used his toothbrush, so Simeon asks him, Luke, did you use my toothbrush again? And Luke says, yeah, I did, so what? (laughs) It's my toothbrush, yeah. And Simeon raises his arms in triumph and says, yes, yes, and he walks out of the room. And no one really knows what's going on. (laughs) And he comes back in and he goes, I peed on my toothbrush. Yes! And he walked back out again. There is always a time when mercy runs out. When you've taken one too many chances and the text pivots on the anger of God. (laughs) It's not just frustration, it's judgment. They are no longer welcome at this banquet. And that chills me too. I don't ever want to decline an invitation to the kingdom. And I realize that the patience of God will not last forever. And we are all invited. But if we decline that invitation, then one day the wedding feast of the Lamb will be closed to us. It is life and death. 
These are the stakes of our mission. They always have been. That's why we do what we do. That's why our family, the underground family, is a missionary family. Because at its core, we are a people that believe that love is something other than the love of self. We believe John 3, 16, which says, for God loved the world so much that he gave his son. And first, John 3, 16, which says, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ gave his life for his friends. And what does he say? What's the next line? And you, my brothers and sisters, must lay down your life for your friends. And if you see someone who is in need and do not help them, how can you say the love of God is in you? This is how we know what love is. It is to lay down your life. It is to put your needs last, to put the needs of others ahead of your own. This is how we know what love is. This is the definition of love for us. And so our lives, our lives are defined by mission. It's defined by who can I love? Who am I called to love? Who, who should I love? Show me the place, Lord, where you want me to pour myself out. Where the group of people that you want me to put beyond my own needs. And listen, I am telling you, every single day, that mission, that missionary identity, that culture, which we have cultivated here, is under threat. It is under threat from every single thing that happens outside these walls. Every single thing that happens outside of our own culture and psyche. Everyone is telling you to abandon your mission. Everything around you is swirling in this chaos, this tempest which says, yeah, don't, don't put others first. And, and maybe you did that for a while because you thought it would be interesting or it would be, it'd be an adventure or it'd be something for you to do, but you're going to hit a wall because it isn't cool anymore and it isn't sexy anymore because the truth is inviting poor people into your, your Thanksgiving is awkward. And if you really live this thing and you really let people into your home and you really share what you have with them, it's weird. And they're weird. Let me invite up the worship team. I, I, the other day I was thinking about Lazarus. Remember Lazarus who dies and Jesus comes and he raises him from the dead? And no one ever thinks like, what was it like after that with Lazarus? You know, like living with Lazarus. What was that like? You know, the miracle. Here comes the miracle. You know, he's like, I want, you know, I want um, chicken soup for dinner. Well, I guess we got to give the miracle what he wants, everything he wants. All of a sudden, his farts don't smell or his, his, his attitude isn't still bad occasionally. He doesn't leave his shoes out in the living room. No, no one's following me on this. The, the miracle, when the, the resurrected Lazarus is like just a normal person still. His sins didn't go away the four days in the tomb. He's still a broken person. This is what it's like, I think, to live with each other. We're all miracles because we have received something we did not deserve. Because the love of God has been placed upon us. His affections have rested on us. But we're all still screwed up. Still offending each other. Still being awkward, and the poor remind us of that. 
deny yourself, see your poverty, all seems so dark. But it isn't. Because in the end, it's about a house being full and a heart being full. It's about real life. It's about trading. Because even though Jesus said, you can't follow me unless you deny yourself, he also said, I have come that you might have life and life to the full. Selfishness is small. Selflessness is the opportunity to live a big life, a full life. Seeing our sin and our poverty means we can be led into this feast, freed, loved, known, wanted. We can celebrate in the house of God. There is nothing greater. We're thinking about moving to another neighborhood. We're talking about it, we're taking it seriously. And because we're working on it and, 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 you know, all those dimensions, I had a conversation with Noah, who's my oldest son the other day, and he just, he said, Dad, tell me, give me an update on what's going on with that. And so I told him, and he said, Noah likes precision. So he said, give me the top three reasons why you're considering moving. Top three reasons. And I like precision too, so I gave him my top three reasons. Reason number one because Monica asked for it. And I said, your mom asked. And I've been married to her for 25 years and she has never asked me for anything. She's gone wherever I've gone, followed us into every harebrained scheme and never done anything but smile and walk with us, and, 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 and she said, you know, Brian, maybe I, maybe I could use a change. That's my first reason. My second is this possibility of letting, giving the house, renting the house to create it, who I love. Oh, we're going to clap for that. <laughs> create is an event. And I love them and always have, and I feel... That would be great if our house, which is near their other places and not a lot of options in the neighborhood, and if we could give that space to them, that's my second reason. And my third reason is to, to find a way to make a new mortgage which gives equity to my housemates because it just doesn't seem completely right to me that all these years I've lived with people and I'm the one that keeps building equity and they don't, and I've always been looking for a way to make that more equitable and that's my third reason and then I said I guess if I had a fourth reason my fourth reason would be for mission penetrating a new neighborhood that also has need and maybe there isn't any underground people there that's my fourth reason and here's the thing I'm not in that list but I don't feel diminished by that. I'm not a martyr here. Saying, I don't, I don't know how to describe it to you. It's like, I want to do this for them. It's what I want, too. Somehow there is this promise. Jesus says, if you'll, 
if you'll give up your life for my sake, you'll find it. If you deny yourself, you'll discover a better version of yourself. A fuller life, a fuller heart. And I don't feel like I'm sacrificing anything. I, I'm, not, I'm just not in the list. And I'm not diminished by that. And don't anyone come up to me and say, Brian, are you okay? And, you know, are you healthy? What you, what you need matters too. Don't, please don't bring that, that, that darkness into my head. Because this is maturity. A life of self-centeredness is empty. It's lonely. A life of self-denial is in the end a full life. And I am happy those are my reasons. They're my reasons. It's what I want. You see, when we, when we give our heart and our lives, they're surrendered to God, then He changes our desires to be like Him. He changes our desires to want to love and care for the people around us, not just ourselves. This is that great transformation that He offers us. And I love it. And one day you wake up and you realize that you are a little more like Jesus than you were the day before. And your selfishness is buried a little deeper into the grave that is your old self. So I'm going to ask you as we come to the table for a couple things. One is I want you to, obviously, I always want you to do some reflection, reflection on your own life. Is, 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 is it possible that you have, maybe in some areas, maybe in the whole of your life, seated yourself on the throne? Is it possible that you don't see, haven't seen your own need for God, your own poverty? Is it possible that you have not respected the urgency of the hour? All of those things. I want you to reflect as we come to the table, but I also want to ask you for something very practical, and I'm really pumped up about this. I won't be if no one joins me, but I know you're going to come through for me right now. So here's what I want to do. I ask so little of you. Just do one thing for me. I'm just going to ask you to do one thing for me. Wednesday, if you're here in town, even if Maybe you were deciding if you're going to leave Wednesday night or Thursday morning or late Wednesday night. Stay. Here's what we want to do. We want to, as, as, a, as a living parable, as an application of this text, we want to go to the food court on Wednesday night at 6 o'clock. And I want everybody to come with us, and everybody pays $10 for dinner. We've already talked to all the vendors, the little food court vendors, and we, we've, they've agreed that that $10 would buy two meals, two meals. And they're going to make a special kind of Thanksgiving version of their, I don't know, cheesecakes, cheese steaks, or <laughs> bourbon chicken, or whatever. I don't know what, what, what's up in the food court, okay? And what I think would be amazing is if 100 of us show up and we buy dinner, not just for ourselves, but for one other person. And then we just go and invite every single person within the, the, the circle of us. We just go get them and have them come get free dinner with us, to eat with us, to create our own little banquet, weird banquet in the food court, made up of underground people and passers-by. 
This mall is a great place to do it. This area is a great place to do it. And I, I want to do it because I want, you to exp- I want you to feel what the servant feels. To go to the highways and the byways, compel them to come in. I'm not sure that the University Mall food court is an exact metaphor for the kingdom of God, but, but on Wednesday night it's going to be. It's going to be an hour, an hour and a half. Come at 6 o'clock. This is what I want you to do. Come at 6 o'clock, spend $10, buy yourself dinner, buy someone you don't know dinner. We'll all go around, we'll pull people in, and we'll just fill that food court. It'll bless the, the vendors, give them some money, a little nice something for their Thanksgiving, and it'll give us a chance to just be together, which we're so rarely all in the same space, and a chance to actually, at least in some small way, say we believe in this version of the kingdom. So I want to know, there's no time to sign up or anything like that. No, one, no one's trying to organize this thing properly. This is it. That's it. What you just heard, that's the whole plan, okay? Six o'clock, we'll meet. We actually have, we're building a theater over there right next to the food court, directly across from the Studio Movie Grill is going to be our theater. We'll open up that door. We'll have a table in there. That's where you can get your tickets, I guess. We're going to have tickets. We'll give those to people. They can just go turn them into any one of the vendors and get a free meal and come and sit with us. That's it. And I want to know who will come because I have no other way to do this. I just want to see you. Just, I want, you look at me. You tell me who can make it. Who can make it? I'm going to count here. Come on. Don't be shy. Change your plans. Come on. Somebody else help me count. Count this side over here. Okay, good. This looks pretty good. And those of you that aren't raising your hands, I still love you. I'm just going to, I know that you're just going to be out of town. That's why you're not raising your hand because I know you'd be here. And I know many of you are, so it's cool. That's great. Uh, is that cool? Can we do that? Can we just have some fun on Wednesday night and invite some people? Okay, good. Oh, and by the way, feel free to apply this to your Thanksgiving, too. I think that'd be cool to hear some stories about how you didn't invite your family to Thanksgiving, <laughs> but instead invited a bunch of random people. Let God lead you, you know. And so we come to this table, this meal, which is open to all people, which in and of itself is an invitation to an eternal kingdom. On the same night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, a symbol of sustenance, of life itself. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat it, all of you, to remember me. And just like that, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sin. Drink it to remember me. And so we have a new paradigm, a new world, a new kingdom in these elements. The greatest of us, broken, bloodshed, a life sacrificed for love. When we come to this table, we don't just come to consume its elements, but we've come to be changed by them, transformed by them, to say we want to live a life like this. This is what love is for us. This is what love is. And so I just, I just want you to take a second, just bow your heads and just do a little bit of evaluation of your own heart, your own life, something he might want to put his finger on, some confession for you. And then when you're ready, as always, these elements are here for you, the body and blood of Jesus given for you.